It's Thursday, May 18th, 2023, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, but I'm not the only Hoover Fellow podcasting these days. I encourage you to go to our website, which is hoover.org, and check out our podcast yourself. Click on the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary. Head over to where it says multimedia and then audio podcasts, and you'll see 17 of them in all. One of those podcasts is actually the audio version of the Goodfellows broadcast that we do every other week. I mention that because one of the stars of that show, John Cochran, joins us today. John Cochran is the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, as well as a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research and an adjunct scholar of the Cato Institute. John's most recent book, his magnum opus, really, is The Fiscal Theory of the Price Level, which explains how government deficits and debt drive inflation. Earlier this week, John Cochran received a 2023 Bradley Prize for his contributions to the field of economics. In the words of the Bradley Foundation that awards the prize, quote, his astute analysis of current economic issues such as inflation, the national debt, and fiscal policy. The Bradley Foundation adding, quote, John makes even the most theoretical economic concept accessible and understandable by applying a combination of wisdom and wit to his work. John, thanks for coming on the podcast. I hope I've not set the bar too impossibly high for you now. <laughs> well, that was certainly a wonderful introduction. And certainly the Bradley Prize was a huge honor. Let's talk about the Bradley Prize. Um, explain a bit to the audience what exactly it is. Uh, the Bradley Prize is given out by the Bradley Foundation uh, annually. Uh, couple of recipients, uh, honoring both uh, academics, um, public intellectuals, and people active out in the world who don't just uh, talk about stuff, but go out and and do stuff. When I heard about it, I couldn't believe it, because when you look at the list of previous uh, prize winners, including our own uh, John Taylor, for example, uh, it's it's full of really remarkable people. So I was very honored to be part of that club, and I'll say inspired, too. Um, You know, when you write you don't really know that anybody's listening, uh, especially, um, you know, in public policy things, which are, you know, those writings are ephemeral. Right. So to learn that the Bradley Foundation and its board, at least, was listening and, and uh, had made some impact was really heartwarming and inspiring. I have projects that do much more of this sort of thing. And it really um, to know that people are listening and care really uh, make, makes a huge difference for me. So yeah, that's the and that's the key word, John, impact. You do a blog called The Grumpy Economist and you post. And of course, there are tens to tens of hundreds of comments about it. And uh, you probably have to filter some of those comments at times. So people clearly read what you write. But the question when you do write a lot prodigiously is, are you actually make a difference? So the Bradley Prize is affirmation of that. I note, by the way, on the Hoover side, Peter Berkowitz is a Bradley Prize winner, uh, the historian Andrew Roberts. Ion Hersey Alley received one in 2015. She is, of course, Mrs. Neil Ferguson. So maybe you and the Fergusons can go out to dinner and tease Neil about that if you want. Richard Epstein won one on the economics front. John Taylor in 2010. Gary Becker in 2008, John. So you are certainly in special company. One thing I would point out is that uh, nothing comes free and your prize actually required you to have to go to Washington, D.C. to pick it up. And I actually saw a very startling image. That was my friend John Cochran wearing a tuxedo. <laughs> I, I actually own a tuxedo. You, you wouldn't believe it. So I shame to discover I put on a few pounds since the last time I used it. I bought the tuxedo because after about the fifth University of Chicago Nobel Prize uh, event where we were required to rent tuxes, I said, well, what the heck? And went out and bought one. <laughs> you look good to John. I couldn't decide if you look like Bond or you look like a Bond villain. But then it occurred to me, economists are never Bond villains. It's always like chemists and physicists and really disgruntled scientists. Ah, that's a good point. Well, uh, Bob Lucas once said, you do good as an economist if you make everyone in the world a, a one penny better off, and maybe our, our capacity for harm is similarly limited. 
I want to mention uh, your friend, Bob Lucas, who just passed away, sadly. But uh, just tell us a bit about what you said when you received the prize. I, I saw a couple snippets online, only like 10, 15 seconds each. But what, what was the gist of your comments? So there is a prize speech, uh, which is will be available soon uh, by video. Uh, Bradley Foundation wants to clean it up a little bit. And uh, I'll also post the entire text. Uh, I took this as an opportunity to distill um, 15 years of uh, popular and, and uh, economic writing into seven minutes. <laughs> and I, I hope I did a good, as well as the pitch for my next book. So I, I tried in, in seven minutes to say, what do I have to say about how to clean up the American economy? Uh, short version is um, we pay attention to all the wrong things. The most important thing is long run economic growth right. that has slowed down remarkably. Uh, I think that can pick up again. Uh, when you look at the numbers, long run economic growth just dwarfs absolutely everything else we talk about. Um, and I think a lot of the problem is, is uh, as I put it, we have the ideas, we have the investment capital, we just can't get the permits. Uh, and I outlined some of the ways that uh, we can fix many of the uh, uh, things that are broken in the U.S. economy. You mentioned uh, Bob Lucas, Robert Lucas, uh, the economist who uh, just passed away a couple of days ago. Uh, tell us a bit about Bob Lucas. He was an economist, also kind of a mentor of yours, right? Oh, absolutely. Bob Lucas was, first of all, uh, within the field of economics, the most important macroeconomics, macroeconomist of the 20th century. Uh, you don't hear about him that much because unlike Friedman and Keynes, he wasn't uh, a, a big public intellectual, uh, didn't advise policy, and didn't have Friedman's impact on um, uh, you know, free markets and, and that sort of thing. But within economics, really, uh, everybody to this day does things the Bob Lucas way. So just a, a giant that way. But also a lot of what I posted about. So I have two blog posts. So one is a couple of personal recollections and another is a, an attempt at a, uh, some of the most important ideas uh, distilled for people who don't like equations and, and use words like general equilibrium and dynamic and stochastic every day over breakfast. <laughs> um, Bob was a, a, a tremendous uh, warm personal guy, a tremendous colleague, a tremendous helper, uh, of young people. Um, and uh, he really had an, an impact on me in that way. He, he sort of handed me my first big paper on a platter. And my job was to understand what had just been handed to me and to go do it. So thank you, Bob. I would not be here at the Hoover Institution. That set, set my career going. Uh, but he also, another thing that I loved about him was he couldn't abide bullshit. And uh, I learned that about Bob before I even met him. You know, it was one of just minor essays that I wrote where he got a little bit uh, annoyed at some uh, uh, policy essays. In the Bob Lucas pantheon, this is a nothing, but it, it was an attitude. There's a lot in economics about blah, 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 blah. And Bob right. was, no, you have to think clearly, tear your models down to what really counts and be honest that intellectual honestly and that not abiding by, by political stuff either, uh, not abiding by what's popular with your team these days. We're just going to do really brutally honest uh, economics, that personal characteristic, as well as his, his uh, you know, warmth and, and, and beautiful insights. That was really important to me. And I, I felt the need to write about that.
I don't know, John, if you saw the New York Times obituary of your friend, but I read it and there was a passage here that caught my eye. And here's what the Times wrote, quote, in a 1988 speech titled What Economists Do, Professor Lucas explained, quote, we economists have to be storytellers. We do not find that the realm of imagination and ideas is an alternative to or retreat from practical reality. On the contrary, it is the only way we have found to think seriously about reality. Is that is that how you approach economics, John? Yeah, I, I call what we do quantitative parables. <laughs> uh, <laughs> economics is complicated enough that if you just try to write beautiful prose, mm-hmm. you go around and round in circles and you forget to tie up the fact that when Bill Whalen bought a new vest, somebody else, he had to spend less on something else. Mm-hmm. You, you, you can forget about you know getting all the markets right, getting the budget constraints right. You have to uh, do them. You have to write models. They have to be mathematical because we just are not capable of making sure that the logic of our prose is right. But you also have to simplify. Uh, when you write a, a, metho- a model of an airplane wing, you just can, you know, we know those laws and you write it down and you write it as realistic as you can. Economic models, we still aren't totally sure of the ingredients. We don't know, you know, when we put Bill Whalen in a model, we don't know exactly what he likes to buy. So the, the, um, the reductionist approach of, of throw everything in the pot in and stir and see what comes out will not work. Right. Instead, uh, the point of a model is to make sure that the story surrounding it is coherent. But you have to understand how the model works. This is how AI will never penetrate economic models <laughs> right. because AI sort of works to predict things, but nobody understands how it works. A successful mm-hmm. economic model has to, it has to be quantitative, it, and Bob really pushed that. You don't just to say, well, up, down. You have to say up, down by 3% or 5%. But it, and it has to be mathematical, it has to be rigorous, but it has to be stripped down to tell the story in, an, in, a, in a digestible and understandable way. And you know, I've spent a lot of my time, my, my physical theory of the price level is really about staring at simple equations and saying, what's the story they tell? Right. Uh, Bob was a man at that, both at stripping down the models and and explaining what the models really meant. Now, John, you just came back from a Washington, which is a Washington drama right now that has to do with the debt ceiling. Uh, The president of the United States traveling to Japan earlier today, Republicans crying foul, everybody mugging for the cameras, doom and gloom disasters around the corner. And we seem to be bogged down now in the debate over the merits of the 14th Amendment, John, Section 4 in particular. Let me read it to you and I want to get your thoughts on this as a way to get out of this, because I think I know what you're going to say. The Section 4 of the 14th Amendment reads as follows, quote, the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services and suppressing insurrection or rebellion shall not be questioned. Lawrence Tribe seems to think this gives the President of the United States power to make debt payments regardless of debt limit uh, limits put in place by Congress. What does John Cochran think? Well, uh, I want to try to avoid the legalistic thing. Right. Uh, the United States has uh, defaulted on debts before. So in 1933, the uh, government debts included a gold clause that said you can get your money back in gold. And the Roosevelt administration said, no, you can't. And the Supreme Court backed them up and said, you constitutionally can do that. Um, but I want, let's talk about the um, economic issues. I believe it is within the legal power of the administration to say um, when the debt ceiling hits, our approach to this will be that we will pay interest and principal on maturing treasury debt, uh, and we will not pay other bills. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is from a policy and, and 
keep America's institutions strong exactly what they ought to do. I think Alexander Hamilton will roll over in his grave. I think he already is rolling over in his grave that they are even talking about doing anything else. Uh, and uh, I, I think that is what they will do, but I am um, shocked that a treasury secretary would say in public anything but uh, on my watch, we repay treasury debt, even though it's held by Wall Street fat cats and Chinese central bankers, the full faith and credit of the United States debt is coming first and everything else is gonna be uh, on, um, later because it is only this great reputation for paying debts that allows the US to borrow uh, when uh, we really need to. And you know, when, when China invades Taiwan, we're gonna need to borrow a bunch of money. And we want people to really believe that money's gonna get repaid no matter what. And, and putting that, that reputation gained over 200 years, 250 years uh, at risk in order to, there's kind of a manufactured crisis here to, to say, oh, you know, you Republicans had better give in and, and go on with our huge spending plans because, you know, we're holding the dead cost. I just, uh, I, I find that uh, shocking that that's what's going on. But so legally, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I believe they can do it. And, and um, as a matter of economics and just, morality and defense of American institutions, I believe they ought to do it. And what's going on is, is that they are deliberate, every sides are trying to make the debt ceiling into a bigger crisis to force the other side to give away. So what does this bode, John, for when there's an honest to goodness crisis with regards to entitlements, social security, Medicare? Yeah, so this is not the great debt crisis that's coming. <laughs> there is a great debt crisis when the U.S. says we need to borrow ten trillion to finance, you know, to bail everybody out again because there's been a financial crisis, right. uh, and we still haven't resolved med Social Security, Medicare, so we don't have any plan for paying it back, and we kind of look like Greece. Uh, that event could come. This is not that event. This is a a technical default, and in a sense, I think what will happen, what the worst that would happen. What most likely will happen is they will continue to pay interest in principal on, on treasury debt and, and postpone other payments. Um, what is um, less likely to happen is that they delay interest principal on treasury debt, but you'll get it eventually. So this is not by itself the great debt crisis. And in fact, you know, let me defend what's going on. We, the budget process is completely broken. Right. Every reasonable government tiny governments set an annual budget and say, okay, here's how much we're going to spend overall. And here's how much we're going to tax overall. And here's what we're going to borrow overall. Now within that spending, you know, then we're going to appropriate bills in regular order and, and obey the spending limit. That, that process is completely broken in the US. So the debt ceiling threat is the only time that, uh, you know, both sides sit down and, and sort of face the music on, on the totals. It's, and it's a, it's a very, third best solution, but it's better than nothing, which is just, uh, uh, you know, just spend like crazy with no budget whatsoever. Let's go and that's necessary. I mean, we've got to solve the long run uh, spending problem before the great debt crisis happens. Right. A favorite cockroach of mine, by the way, I believe it's words the extent of dropping money out of a helicopter. Uh, well, that's actually Milton Friedmanism, but I'm happy to appropriate it. Uh, we'll call it a cockroach for now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, see, do you see yourself saying that anytime in the near future, or do you think we've moved past the days of $5 trillion? Oh, no. Uh, I, I think um, I'm shocked that we're still doing $1 trillion deficits. So deficits are fine. The U.S., if you have a temporary emergency, like a war, like a financial crisis, uh, you know, it is right for a government to borrow money, 
with a clear plan of how it will be repaid by slightly higher taxes or slightly lower spending over time. Right. Uh, but we are now not in a crisis. COVID's over. Unemployment's 3.4%. Uh, the, the war in Ukraine is, is a war, but it's very it's not very expensive by U.S. government standards. Right. There is no excuse for a trillion-dollar deficit right now. Uh, and I, what I worry about is, is where's our borrowing capacity when the true danger comes? Let's go inside the world of Hoover for a minute, John, and that is the Hoover Monetary Policy Conference that was just last week here on the Stanford campus. The, 22, the 2022 title of this conference, John, was How Monetary Policy Got Behind the Curve and How to Get Back. Yeah. Retitled, John, How to Get Back on Track. Get Back, two years in a row. What, what are you guys saying? <laughs> you guys uh, being Hoover's economists, by the way. This, this is a, a creation of John Taylor, and I know you're involved in the annual conference planning. In fact, maybe explain a bit what the conference is, and let, let's get to that phrase, get back. It's a great annual conference, uh, and it is a testament to John Taylor's convening capacity. Mm-hmm. We bring together uh, academics, um, industry people, uh, media and uh, Federal Reserve officials and Federal Reserve staff to spend a day talking about monetary policy and and where's it's going. Um, Here at Hoover, away from the annual, from the pressures uh, of the day. And I think it's been a great success. It's also been a great success in that it's been a series of conferences. It's built a reputation. John uh, makes everybody write down what they said and publishes an annual book. So there's a record of where we are, videos, and, and, and we will soon have videos and stuff, which I, I think people would be very interested to watch. So uh, that, that's the series has been a good. Now, the, the question, um, last year's conference, I think, was actually quite influential. We had inflation, and the Federal Reserve had, quite contrary to Taylor's rule, uh, left interest rates alone. And the basic thrust of the conference was John Taylor saying, guys, inflation's, you know, what are you supposed to do when inflation goes up? You're supposed to raise interest rates which they promptly did just about, um, now I don't, I don't want to grant us the influence, but I think that was very important. Well, the speaker's drama is Philip Jefferson. He's been nominated to be the Fed's uh, vice chair. What did he tell the audience and how did you take it? Um, Jefferson was, was great. Uh, what I loved about Jefferson is he started with by attacking, <laughs> uh, not attacking, by, by politely, God, the guy is polite, uh, politely questioning the premise of the conference. What do you mean back on track? He did his homework. Um, yeah, he did his homework. Yeah, he said, we're, we're, we're doing just fine. Uh, we, uh, you know, whether or not we were a little slow last year, uh, he laid out the Fed's thinking on why they are exactly at the right place now. Uh, and, and we'll see if he's, if, if he's right or not. So um, certainly, and he also announced his appointment as uh, vice chair of the Fed. Mm-hmm. And boy, he, he did a great, great job of uh, judicious central banker uh, speech. I want to point to two things that I thought were very significant at the conference. Um, the two sessions that, that, well, the whole thing was great, which I highly recommend. Uh, but there was a first session on the uh, Silicon Valley bank collapse and the related mm-hmm. bank collapses, and a second session uh, on uh, how did inflation forecasting get so wrong, and uh, whether or not monetary policy and is on track uh, right now. Um, we have to face the fact that the Fed had two major institutional failures. The Fed is, wants 2% inflation. It got eight, didn't see it coming, and didn't see what it was when it was smacking it right in the face. Uh, that's an institutional failure. That's like, you know, uh, the, you, you're the admiral at Pearl Harbor and uh, the Japanese zeros come in. We got to talk about how that happened. 
The second, of course, with the, the wave of bank failures we're having now, which there's no toxic mortgages and derivatives and obscure, deregulated, whatever. This was plain old interest rate risk on run-prone deposits, the sort of thing that we've understood since about 1720. Uh, and yet the regulators completely missed that one. That too, I call it an institutional failure. It's not, the people in the Fed are smart, they are honest, they are hardworking public servants, yet somehow this institution missed its two biggest um, tasks, inflation and plain vanilla bank regulation. So, and, and um, the thing I'm a little shocked, that is there is not any appetite for a how did we go wrong, not, not even an external, not an internal inquiry. The military, our friend H.R. McMaster, Right. You lose a battle and there is at least an after action report on what the hell went wrong, guys, and how do we fix it? And that is not happening. So those two sessions, I thought, were, were extremely important, at least in opening the conversation. We must talk about how this went wrong and, and how we fix it one way or another. Uh, because, again, it's not just get the evil doers and the deregulators and the whatever. It, it is very smart people, dedicated people in an institution where the structure of the rules is what went wrong in Silicon Valley Bank. And uh, I don't know what went, you know, Mickey Levy had a great paper on what, what right. conceptual things went wrong in inflation forecasting. So I think teeing up those two questions are actually the most important parts of getting back on track, not just our short-term interest rates. You know, where is short-term interest rates relative to the Taylor rule that we spend a little too much attention on? That's what Phil Jefferson talked about. So I said on a couple of sessions, John, I remember you asked that very question to the panel, just why doesn't the Fed really examine itself? And that's a great question, John. Why doesn't the Fed examine itself or perhaps more to the point, where's Congress? Congress is, of course, obsessed with checking COVID and where COVID came from and why we just chose what we did to do in COVID. Why isn't Congress re-examining what the Fed did? Well, I think uh, direct congressional hearings on monetary policy and financial regulation aren't necessarily going to be a great idea. <laughs> Uh, because not going to get a lot of live coverage on Fox, is it? <laughs> uh, well, but, but I do think the right mechanism is the you know the bipartisan commission, the inquest, or the, the and the Fed should be heading that off immediately with a right. a internal uh, you know how did we get it wrong would be a great way to head off. Look, look, Fed. I hope you're listening. If you don't want the, you know, what you regard as those yahoos from Congress hauling you down to say, where's the gold standard, then you better, why don't you clean your own house first? I suspect, now here, this is deeper in, and maybe I'm a little too cynical, but Washington is right now a, a collection of cover your butt institutions. Right. Where is the CDC's internal reflection on how did we screw up COVID so wrong? Where's the FDA's internal reflections on how did we screw up COVID uh, so wrong? Where's the FBI's internal reflections on how did we screw up uh, you know, the, the, the Trump gate uh, so, so long? You know, that's not the way Washington works. You, you maintain the prestige of the institution above all else. That's, that's a, a guess. Uh, I, uh, people I know at the Fed are asking these questions, but there's no institutional, uh, how did this institution get it wrong? Yeah, John, there used to be a time in American journalism when great newspapers had what they called ombudsmen. And the ombudsman would have a column and the ombudsman would criticize the newspaper openly if the ombudsman thought the paper had done something bad. Uh, the Fed, I guess, doesn't have an ombudsman, somebody who can sit inside internally and kind of monitor what's going on. Uh, as far as I know, it doesn't. And it has um, something I've thought about for a long time. Again, I learned lessons from, from HR. This is the great thing about being at Hoover. You, you learn from people in other fields. Yes. Uh, 
the military makes a battle plan, they understand Mike Tyson's advice about how long battle plans last. <laughs> so you can't get punched in the mouth, right? Uh, they do a lot of contingency planning. Well, if they come over the right wing, right flank, what happens? If they come over the left, what happens? The Fed uh, uh, tends to say, here's the forecast, here's what we're going to do, mm-hmm. and does not either think about contingencies. Well, if X, then what? If Y, then what? And it doesn't have a systematic red team. Uh, military planning, you know, you know, Wayland might be assigned, okay, you got to, you're the red team this time. What's wrong? Where are we falling prey to group groupthink? How could, you know, at least you want to, you want to listen. Maybe the red team's wrong, uh, but, but you want to listen. And, and the institutional uh, rewards for being red team are, are not high at the Fed. And, and you know, you, you need to have the red team and, and listen to it and, and prize it. That, that, that's the kind of, we talked about this at the conference, uh, mm-hmm. especially in Mickey Levy's, Mickey Levy's session on, on inflation forecasting. Institutionally, What's going wrong with inflation forecasts and how can we make them better? Well, a red team might be a good one. Uh, Steve Davis pointed out that the forecasts are also used to shape expectations. We all understand that if everyone expects inflation, there's going to be more inflation. So the Fed uh, is doesn't really want to say, there's a strong incentive not to say, well, whoa, whoa, here comes 8% inflation because then everybody will raise their prices today. Well, now you have a, a big conflict that, you know, inst- these are the kind of institutional uh, changes that you ought to think about um, that I hope the Fed will at some point think about. And this really, I, I want to highlight this aspect of the conference as opposed to the where the interest rates going, because that those are the really deep questions that we get to ask at these conferences. Right. Well, interest rates are in the news this morning, John. Uh, Lori Logan, she's the president of the Dallas Fed. Uh, she said words to the extent that she doesn't think that uh, data points justify skipping a rate hike in June. What, what's your sense, John, is what the Fed's going to do when it meets in June? Uh, I, I think uh, short-term bets on where the Fed goes is is not not a specialty of mine. Uh, uh-huh. That's why I'm not a bond trader, and I still have to work at Hoover for a paycheck. Right. <laughs> I think uh, in the larger sense, we know exactly how the Fed is going to work. Uh, mm-hmm. The Fed is one of the more predictable agencies. If they see inflation not easing, they're going to keep raising rates. Mm-hmm. The, the, here's how the Fed thinks about the world. We raise rates, that cools the economy. Uh, and by some Phillips curve magic, cooling the economy lowers inflation. That may not be right, but that's how the Fed thinks about the world. So right. the Fed wants to see the economy cooling and it wants to see inflation going down and kind of like driving down the road. So yeah, is the Fed going to bump the steering wheel left or right um, this time? I, I don't exactly know, uh, but we know where it's going and that it's going to try uh, as long as inflation is not trending downwards, they're going to keep uh, raising rates. Um, so good luck to us. Unless, until, well, until the in, they're trying to induce some a little bit of recession. And when that gets a little bit out of hand, then they're going to back off. And uh, I actually, so that's what they're going to do. And it's fraught. Um, interest rates power to cool the economy and cool inflation is much weaker than most of us think. And the Fed, and I think much weaker than the Fed thinks. So when when the med right now we're kind of the point the medicine seems not to be working, <laughs> labor markets are still incredibly strong, and and uh, we may come to an interesting moment when the Fed realizes that the medicine isn't working, and now what? 
I want to take you down to an alternate universe in which John Cochran has been nominated to be the chairman of the Federal Reserve, and you're smiling. Um, I'm not sure if John Cochran lives to see that day. Your wonderful wife, Beth, may kill you because that would mean disrupting the great life you have in Palo Alto and and, uh, Tahoe. Uh, But let's play along for a second here, and you're going to Washington to be confirmed as the Fed chair. That means that some minion like me, John, is tasked with digging into John Cochran's past. You know where they're going to go first, John? They're going to go to the Grumpy Economist blog, and then they go through every darn thing you've written, and they're going to land, John, on February the 19th, 2012, and the following, the title of it is Fed Independence 2025, and here's what the Grumpy Economist John Cochran asked, quote, what will the Fed look like in 2025? How long can it stay independent as it takes on more and more power and uses that power for political policy actions? John, that is 11 years and three months ago. Would you like to update that to 2023? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I believe in an independent central bank as a Mm -hmm. great institution. It's a pre-commitment mechanism. Uh, The government would clearly always like to, you know, get interest rates low before a recession. Mm -hmm. And and a good, you know, we we have constitutions and we have independent central banks for a reason, which is we want to pre-commit ourselves against doing stuff like that. So that's an an independent central bank is a great institution, but not too independent. Uh, you don't want to uh, uh, elect us, you know, if, if, if they're completely politically independent, then they go off and, you know, whatever crazy thing gets in the head of the central bank chair, the central bank goes and does. If they want to uh, subsidize black vest production, that's what you got around today, <laughs> then uh, then they go do it. Well, we don't want that. They, they you know, hand, hand So we, we have this balance. Uh, part of an independent central bank is we give them a mandate, inflation and, un- and employment and financial stability. And part of that mandate means, and nothing else. Right. <laughs> it's not what you should pay attention to that's important in there. It's what you should not pay attention to. So that's a great system and worth uh, persevering. But everything in Washington is political. Now, that column was written in a particularly grumpy moment. And what I was grumpy about was a, a admittedly small, but to me, shocking instance of political action by the Fed. And the part that got me really mad at the time, if you recall, there was a robo-signing scandal where banks had, uh, since the volume of foreclosed mortgages was so high, they weren't filling out all the paperwork in the proper dotting I's and crossing T's. A bunch of attorneys general went nuts about it and uh, extracted money out of the banks. And to my uh, shock, surprised the Fed went up. And what the Fed did was used its its supervision power, its safety and soundness supervision to say that as punishment for the banks doing this, uh, it was going to go along with the attorneys general and impose regulatory sanction. Now, nothing about what the banks did was unsafe or unsound. Mm-hmm. It, it uh, you know, they foreclosed on some mortgages, which was politically unpopular of, of people whose mortgage weren't paying their mortgages and it didn't fill out all the paperwork, but there was nothing that threatened the bank's safety about this. And it went along and forced the banks to enter an agreement that did not give money back to the people whose mortgages had been foreclosed, but gave money, among other things, to community groups who are largely engaged in partisan political advocacy. So the Fed forced banks to give money to political actors. That just struck me as, now it was small, but it was shocking. So that, you know, where are we today? The Fed is very political. Uh, and to some extent, it has to be because, of course, Fed chairs get reelected. I actually admire how Jay Powell has uh, navigated political waters. <laughs> uh, I think if I were Fed chair, I would be fired within a week. 
<laughs> don't have that skill. Uh, how he has, um, you know, gotten gotten reappointed by a Democratic president. How he has navigated, especially the current demand of the Fed is that it uses its awesome power to um, force climate policy, and, and not even I hate to call it climate policy because it's not going to do any good for the climate, but to defund fossil fuels uh, and and force um, all, all sorts of green subsidies on the financial system. And he said, "No, I'm not, but we're going to study it," and just navigated that whole thing fairly brilliantly, given the political realities. Um, the Fed is, you know, the banks are very popular in Washington, D.C. And, you know, one of the other things I'm mad at the Fed about is that they quash narrow banks. Uh, so narrow banks are um, the banks that take your deposits and put them in reserves at the Fed. That bank can never run. No financial crisis ever again if we have narrow banks. What's the Fed doing about narrow banks? Uh, what it should be doing then is giving them gold stars for systemic safety and saying thank you for helping the country to avoid financial crisis. What it's doing is is uh, stopping them from operating because they threaten the profitability of the big banks. Well, that's not so good either. But these are, it's easy to say a shame, a shame, a shame. But we live in such a partisan political environment, and the Fed has to keep going. Uh, that is the world we're in, and and not a world that I think you or I would like the Fed to be in. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not going to scream bad individuals because everybody I know, including Jay Powell, who plays this game, is, is playing the best hand they have in a game with some pretty rotten rules. But it is one where our Fed has become uh, quite political and, and um, only better than most of the other central banks. <laughs> let's talk about what uh, a Cochrane standard, let's call it, for what sort of inbounds and out-of-bounds for the Fed. John, I'll point you to October 2020, the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis holding a forum. The title of that forum, John, Racism in the Economy, Focus on the Wealth Divide. Yeah. Uh, well, that's an example of a, uh, I mean, I think lack of opportunity for um, people, Americans who are of less fortunate, mm -hmm. which happens to include a lot of minorities is a very important issue, uh, but it's not the Fed's issue. Uh, you know, the Fed has a limited mandate. Now, maximum employment does mean everybody. So, I'm, you know, the way you get maximum employment is buying, especially increasing employment among people who don't work a lot. So that would be great. Mm -hmm. Recognize, however, the Fed's limited tools. Um, so, you know, the Fed moves interest rates around. Now, if you want to talk about why so many Americans don't work, um, maybe we should start with the fact that from about zero to $60,000, if you earn an extra dollar, you lose a dollar worth of social program benefits. No maximum employment, dear Congress, you know, fix that one. The Fed has no power to fix that one. Um, so I, I think this is an example of the Fed trying to play political. I, I think it's a dangerous one. I think, you know, this is why I might be fired. This is an important social issue. We have nothing to do with it. Chris Waller, I want to flag as being really courageous. He has said, as far as climate, climate change is a is a uh, important economic uh, and uh, uh, issue. Uh, it is an issue that plays out over decades, and it has absolutely no impact on financial risk of the kind that the Fed can do anything about. Uh, he didn't say this, but I would. We can't see plain vanilla interest rate risk staring us in the face. So good luck that you're going to think the Fed is going to do something about risks to sea level rise 50 years from now. Uh, it just doesn't have the institutional competence or the mandate to do it. Uh, so we all sort of have, you know, this is part of 
many, you know, lots of companies are virtue signaling right. uh, uh, politically. I think this is going to come bite the Fed, but because we still have elections in the U.S. and, and uh, you know, people are going to be very mad about this when those political winds change. So, John, the Fed is the result of the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. That is 110 years ago. To use some very Washington verbs, does the Fed need reforming? Does the Fed need fixing? Um, yes. <laughs> in the sense that uh, all institutions uh, need reforming and fixing in American government. I mean, all of the institutions of our government have, have suffered mission creep and bloat. Right. And, and the Fed is no exception. I actually might start at the financial regulation part, uh, which, uh, you know, the last, we just all, we keep adding rules and we never clean them out. <laughs> so the entire system of government needs, needs Marie Kondo to go after it <laughs> and right. start with the sock drawer and heavens to Betsy, the garage is waiting for us. Uh, and the Fed, especially in its financial regulatory role, needs that. Uh, I do think, um, you know, fundamental reforms are good, but the problem with fundamental reforms is you need a constitutional moment to do it. You need a moment where you can sit down and write the rules of the game. And we understand, look, you'll be on top sometimes, I'll be on top sometimes. So let's write the rules of the game mm -hmm. so that this plays out well. Right now is a poor constitutional moment for Americans because every time we talk about changing the rules of the game, you can see both sides are, how can we get a very short run advantage out of this? You know, we talk about how do we change the number and tenure of Supreme Court appointees? Well, that's just about how do we get more Democrats appointed? So you, you need to make those constitutional changes when you can have a moment of relative peace and not be looking at just the short run advantage. So I, I'm not sure I, a, it's a wise moment to reconstitute it, but I think the Fed should be doing this internally. A mm -hmm. uh, good way to start is the Fed is one of the best run institutions in government, uh, which just tells you something about all the others. But it certainly can consider its own internal reforms and, and ought to do so. What about the Fed creating, John, a outside body, if you will, Hoover economist, other economists to sit down and perhaps write recommendations for the Fed? That's a great idea. Uh, the Fed, one of the problems is uh, there's a lot of a, uh, a closed loop uh, right. inside the bubble um, and um, uh, not much career incentive for speaking out within the Fed. Uh, right. against, there's a Consensus is a good thing in some sense. You communicate better if you're not squabbling with each other in public, mm -hmm. but then uh, consensus leads to groupthink too. So um, that's part of what's good about the Fed, I should say. The system of why do we have these regional banks? Well, the regional banks have been important historically as places where dissent could bubble up, where red team reports could happen. You know, Jeff Lacker could come in every time and vote no. <laughs> uh, the Minneapolis Fed could support a bunch of total heretics on monetary policy uh, and similarly. Uh, but um, certainly one of, you know, you mentioned the what if John gets appointed Fed chair. Uh, yeah. I would certainly want at least a kitchen cabinet of outside people to tell me you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And, and uh, I could ignore them, but only after listening to them. Well put. Uh, among other Fed reforms, John, uh, if you're appointed a, a governor to the board, I believe you get a 14-year term. You're appointed chairman or vice chair, you get only four years. Should we perhaps give the chair a longer term? Well, I, I, there's there's a uh, there's good and bad to be said here. Um, uh, there's an element of shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, it said after every crisis, what do Americans do? We we change the org chart, <laughs> right. and sometimes. Institutions depend on people within them 
obeying the norms of the institutions. I think a lot of what we're seeing going wrong in America right now is that people are obeying the letter of the institutions, but not the norms of the institutions and therefore destroying them. So, you know, you, you, if the norm is, we understand the Fed is a independent, limited authority institution, we reappoint Fed chairs when they're doing that job, as opposed to, you know, we try to appoint someone who's our partisan, going to do our partisan thing on some policy today. Does it matter whether it's four years or eight years? And if we're not going to do that, does it matter if it's eight years rather than four years? Um, I don't think so. You don't, you want independence, but we do want political accountability. You know, there's a, the Fed has, here's a limit on the Fed. You want inflation. The Fed wanted inflation for a long time. What's the easiest way to get inflation? Drop money from helicopters, right? The Fed legally cannot do that because it also legally can't come take your money. The most effective way to stop inflation is to come to Bill Whalen's house and hoover up all the money in his his wallet. Fed can't do that. Treasury can do that. And Treasury is politically accountable. So you need political accountability. And like the, you know, you you mentioned sort of climate and and, um, inequality. Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, the the European Central Bank is kind of, it's much more insulated from, from politics and has gone much more down the we are going to use our central banking powers to pursue specific kinds of green policy. And I want to emphasize not necessarily green policy is going to work. They want to subsidize electric cars. They, you know, they want to <clears throat> divest fossil fuels. And, you know, uh, right now, the politically accountable authorities in Europe are, are taking a second look at whether <clears throat> cutting off all the fossil fuels is a good idea. Uh, so you don't want too much independence <clears throat> by central bankers. So I, I'm not sure I would start with changing the rules. I want to start with getting back to the norms. Yeah. So John, we're only five months into the new year, and this has already been arguably probably the biggest pressure year of your life, and that's your passion project. Uh, the fiscal theory of the price level has been published, and now you have a Bradley Prize in your pocket. Uh, I'm reminded of when the actor Colin Firth won his Oscar for the uh, uh, for the King's Speech. He gets up on the stage in his very understated British way, and he says, I'm afraid my career may have peaked. <laughs> I'm not suggesting your career is peak, John, but where do you go from here in that? You have your Bradley Prize and your book is out. You mentioned that you are working on another book or thinking about another book. Yeah, I, 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 I hope my career has not peaked. I feel vital. I'm full of projects uh, ahead, which I think are always going to be better than the ones uh, behind. In, in the world of gerontocracy, John, you're still a young man. Well, well, in, in the world of uh, academic economics, uh, I, you know, it's, it's it's a young and highly technical game. But um, yeah, but what's next for you? Uh, well, two things. Uh, the fiscal theory of the price level book is just a foundation. Mm-hmm. It, it's a structure on which you can build um, more realistic um, things. And in particular, uh, do we really know whether and how higher interest rates lower inflation? Uh, that question is really unsettled. So Academically, that's sort of the next step for fiscal theory of the price level. And I, I kind of laid out the Bradley Prize um, on my, on my uh, public, public writing. Uh, I think it's time to put all put 15 years of grumpy economists and op-eds into one place and try to synthesize what the big lessons are. So those, that's where my academic and uh, policy projects go. I, I hope those are uh, even bigger successes than the last ones, but uh, I'm at least going to keep trying for a while. Here's another good use of your time, John. Keep doing the Goodfellow show. We recorded the other day. You were not on it. I think it was the first time in 107 shows you were not there. It's odd not seeing you on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sorry I had to miss it. Uh, Bradley Price uh, uh, scheduling was a little chaotic. 
And I'm especially glad I had to say I had to pull out. I, l- I look forward to uh, the first time when I get to watch the show without knowing what's actually on it. So uh, that'll that'll be a, a pleasure this time. And I'll, I'll try to keep my, my track record of not missing shows. We'll start a new streak, uh, which hopefully means we'll be doing the show for another three years. And Neil Ferguson was lost. He kept looking for you taking notes. <laughs> I to listeners, this is, to listeners, this is an inside joke. Neil Ferguson just loves to kind of ad lib and riff and go along and be free flowing. John Cochran is very deliberative in what he says, and he takes copious notes throughout the show so much that it irks Neil. Good Neil doesn't understand that the rest of us are not as smart as Neil in the particular capacity of a historian. Yes. Neil can listen to something and mentally go, okay, I want to make five points with subpoint ABC. He yeah. can do that, organize it in his mind, and then deliver a, a beautiful and eloquent uh, summary of his 10 points. I can't do that. I have to write them down or, or I'll go, yeah, but what was I saying? And then back to point number two. So, you know, you know, Neil, give us a break. We're not all as, as smart and eloquent as you are. <laughs> well, so you're trying to keep up with Neil. Imagine me trying to keep up with you and H.R. McMaster and Neil Ferguson. Not easy. Uh, you are doing a great job, Bill. And you you keep us from, we, we could easily go down rabbit holes uh, together. So you keep us moving, which is an important task. Thanks. I appreciate that, John. Hey, thanks for coming on the podcast today. And congratulations for the Bradley Prize. And please tell your wonderful wife, I was only kidding about you going to Washington. <laughs> it was a great pleasure, and we'll see you about that. <laughs> You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. John Cochran, brave man that he is, is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at John H. Cochran. That's Cochran spelled C-O-C-H-R-A-N-E. His blog, as I mentioned, is called The Grumpy Economist. You should definitely check that out as well. Also, subscribe to The Goodfellow Show, where you can hear John Neal Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, mix it up. We'll be recording a, a new episode at the end of the month, so make sure to tune in for that. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the show, which is hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which keeps you updated on what John Cochran and his Hoover colleagues are up to. That's the mail to you weekdays. You can also sign up for Hoover's Pod Blast, which delivers the best of our podcast each month to your inbox. John, final word here. Where can people find the fiscal theory of the price level? At uh, Princeton University Press website, where right now there's a 50% off sale of its dramatically over, uh, high, too high price. And you can also find associated essays uh, on my uh, website, just Google John Cochran, find the uh, find the Fiscal Theory of the Price Level tab. And the, uh, the essays I recommend for uh, lay listeners because they um, explain some of the ideas without equations and, and apply them to current events. And then, of course, go buy the book and impress your friends. Yes, very good. And of course, when John's uh, Bradley Prize Award speech comes out, it will be in the Hoover Daily Report. Another reason to subscribe to that. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with a new installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.